Kia ora and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Rachel and I'm a student here at Te Herengawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. I'm joined by Anna, our guest host and dear friend, who is also a student here. Kia ora. In this episode, we chat with Craig Greenfield, founder of the Alongsiders Movement and friend of ours who lives and works in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Craig has just released his new book, Subversive Mission, and we chat about missions, colonization, and how to walk alongside and befriend the poor. Rachel and I really enjoyed this conversation as we both had a season living in Cambodia and connecting with Craig and his work. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, so exciting. You haven't been in New Zealand a lot over the last few years. so I haven't. This is my first time back in five years. So we're lucky to be able to have you on the podcast. And when do you return to Cambodia? January. So lucky. I think Anna and I feel really excited getting to kind of return to our memories of yeah. Cambodia. Yeah, cool. Through talking to you, yeah. Cool. Craig, can you tell us a bit about yourself and who you are and what your context is? Yeah. Sure. So uh, my name's Craig Greenfield, and um, I, I actually grew up here in New Zealand, but I was born in Canada and uh, have lived in the slums in Cambodia for more than 15 years. And so really wherever I go, I'm, a, I'm an outsider, even here in New Zealand. I haven't been here for five years, so it's great to, great to be back. But in many ways, I'm, I'm an outsider here as well. And so I, I kind of like to think that I'm an outsider who helps insiders become alongsiders. That's kind of the calling on my life. So I started a, a youth-led grassroots movement called Alongsiders International. And uh, we ask young people around the world, um, but especially in some of the, the, the poorest, most non-Western places in the world, like across Asia and Africa and Latin America, although we're, we're into Europe now, but we ask them to make a very simple but powerful commitment to walk alongside those who walk alone. And so in practice, what that means is we ask them, and these are young people, you know, in their early 20s, late teens, to choose one at-risk child each from their own community. They're not crossing communities. They're not going across town. It's their neighbours. Choose one at-risk child and walk alongside that child. Encourage them, love them, coach them, make sure they're in school, help them with their homework, go fishing, but really just walk alongside those who walk alone. Mm -hmm. So that movement is now spread um, across 25 countries around the world. About 16,000 children and young people involved in the movement. And um, it's exciting to see what is happening outside of the West. We need perspective. So hopefully today we can explore a little bit about what's happening outside New Zealand and outside America, which dominates our news cycles. You've spent some time kind of around Canada and New Zealand and Cambodia, as you yes. said. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like living cross-culturally and across different contexts? Actually, after we had been living in, in a Phnom Penh slum in Cambodia for seven years, really with very little electricity or running water, um, very kind of impoverished situation, we moved to inner city Vancouver. And actually, most people, many people don't realise that Canada has this very poor postal code area, this very inner city area in Vancouver, with the most concentrated area of drug activity in North America. Mm. Thousands of injecting drug users and folks who are living homeless on the streets and people trapped in prostitution. And so there's, that was very cross-cultural as well, although 
it was probably the the closest we could find to an Asian slum that we could where we could feel that sense of vibrancy and life and interconnectedness and doing life outside your house. Uh, we found that on the streets of Vancouver. But again, it was cross-cultural. I mean, I'm rocking up to Canada with my New Zealand accent, although to some of you probably it sounds like I have a Canadian accent, but to them I very much had a Kiwi accent. And, um, yeah, it was cross-cultural. And I think in every new context, as followers of Jesus, we, we are interested and perhaps passionate about what good news looks like. Mm. What is good news? Jesus took that good news. Um, but to really discover that, I think we need to understand what the bad news is in any given context. So where we were coming from in Cambodia and the slums is a real sense of community. Now, I'm not saying that they're happy. You know, a lot of people go to these places and like, oh, the, the poor are so happy. They're smiling all the time. Actually, it's a, it's a real misunderstanding of their context. But they did have a sense of community. They knew their neighbours. They watched over each other's children. They helped each other when they were sick. There was a real sense of community in the slums of Cambodia. But when we went to Vancouver, we wanted to discover what is the bad news in a place like this. There's the obvious addictions and all of that. So we spent um, a few weeks, me and, a, me and a mate, living on the streets of Vancouver, just as homeless men, experiencing a little bit of what our friends and neighbours were, were going through. And so one of the things that came out of that was just, wow, there's a real sense of isolation for our friends on the streets, a real sense of rejection. People would just ignore you as if you didn't exist. So we realized, well, well if that's the bad news and the good news from a, from a Christian perspective, which I, as a person of faith, I'm very interested in that, the good news is the radical welcome, the radical welcome of Jesus welcoming those who are not always welcome in our society. So we just decided to open up our home. Uh, we lived in community with about a dozen of us in different homes that were interconnected. And uh, each night we would open our table as a kind of an open table, see who shows up. And our, our motto was cook too much food, invite too many people. And uh, we never knew how many people would show up each night, but it's usually somewhere between 20 and 40 people were there and uh, had a great time of just experiencing and living the teachings of Jesus in the midst of Vancouver's inner city. Mm. So you've talked about living in Cambodia and in Canada, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the context in Cambodia and some of the history that shapes the way that being in that country is for you. Yeah, so, so when we step into a place like Cambodia, Cambodia has obviously hundreds, if not thousands of years of history, a mighty nation that built Angkor Wat, one of the seven wonders of the world. But over recent decades, and, you know, they were colonized by the French. Uh, those who come with a white face are called Barang, which means French. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a Barang, I'm a French colonizer. We step into a place where... You know, war has absolutely ravaged the nation of Cambodia. So in the in the 60s and early 70s, intellectuals from Cambodia went to France, went to learn from their colonizers and um, began to learn about communism and what kind of a re what a revolution might look like in their own context. And they brought these ideas back. Pol Pot, many of you would have heard that name, was their leader. 
And so they their vision was to take Cambodia back to year zero. Start again, blank sheet of paper. No more educated class, no more rich class. Everyone will be peasants and together we will build the nation. Now, the Khmer Rouge were just a motley band of, of fighters until the Vietnam War with America. And so during the, the later years of the Vietnam War, America was dropping bombs on Vietnam and on Cambodia because the Viet Cong were crossing the border into the eastern regions of Cambodia. And so actually... Tons and tons, you know, some people say as many as one or even maybe two million tons of bombs were dropped on Cambodia. And so what happened was the Khmer Rouge leveraged that. They said, look at these imperialists, they're bombing us. You must turn to us. And so the, the numbers of these Khmer Rouge insurgents swelled from just a few thousand to tens of thousands. And so... Again, like all of these things are interconnected. These uh, what happens beyond our borders affects our brothers and sisters around the world. Mm. When we engage in military action, there are flow-on effects. Whenever we use violence as a tool for solving problems, there are all kinds of unintended and intended consequences. And so um, you can draw a direct line between American military intervention in Vietnam and the rise of the Khmer Rouge, who ultimately went on to take over Cambodia and killed over a million, maybe even a million and a half of their own people in a purge, a massive purge. So, you know, a massive, awful, terrible tragedy across the nation of Cambodia. And that was in the early 70s. Those who were educated were the first to be killed. Those who were city dwellers were also killed. And many others were forced into the countryside to try to grow rice. It was a massive disaster. These, these communist leaders who had been educated in France didn't know how to grow rice, so it was a terrible disaster. Many more hundreds of thousands died of starvation. If you can imagine what that would do to a nation... Uh, my own wife went through that process. She was a refugee, and um, when she was five years old, her mother said, they're now wanting to force you into the fields to work as well as a five-year-old. And it's nay. She was malnourished. She was sickly. Um, her mother knew that if they forced her into the fields under the hot sun every day, she could probably die. My wife's mother managed to get $20 together and paid off a local passing truck driver. It was a fertilizer truck and they, they got into the back of this truck with all the shit in the fertilizer and um, escaped to the edge of the jungle where they hiked to the refugee camp. So that's my personal connection with the past of Cambodia. And here in New Zealand, actually, when I was a kid, my parents took in two Cambodian refugees from the Khmer Rouge. So I grew up with a Cambodian brother and a Cambodian sister. So so my links to Cambodia go back to childhood mm. and hearing these stories of war and atrocity that my brother and sister had gone through was pretty compelling and pretty deeply impacting for me. Mm. Do you think that's part of what's made you just love Asia so much and particularly Cambodia? Do you think that kind of young exposure to my... I, I think so. You know, I mean, what, what the eye has not seen, the heart cannot grieve. It's very hard for us to imagine places we just heard about on the internet or something. But when we have a personal connection, we have a personal relationship, then our level of commitment 
grows. Our willingness to sacrifice grows. And so this is one of the reasons I'm, I am a proponent of us being a part of the world. Not, not saying, well, uh, well, if I ever set foot on another nation, then I'm a, you know, I'm a terrible person. I have no right to be anywhere else other than my own country. But to say we desperately need each other. We need to learn from Cambodians. They have things to learn from us. It's a mutual relationship where we can, we can love and serve one another as brothers and sisters. So. Oh, yeah, I love that so much. And I wanted to, I think that story about Nay's mum mm-hmm. is really powerful, and, but really risky. Yeah, I mean, they were hiking through the jungle past dead bodies who had been blown up by landmines and hoping to avoid those same landmines themselves. So it was the fact that they even got through was pretty amazing. And many didn't, of course. And then just think of what happened at the other end. A little Presbyterian church in Tamaki Makoto uh, welcomes them in and takes them in and helps them to get acclimatized and accustomed to New Zealand culture and shows Nay what cheese is. And they really took, I mean, Nay's mum couldn't speak any English. So Nay at five years old arrives in New Zealand and is the translator for the family. And um, it's navigating everything that you navigate. So, you know, there's that whole connection with how do we welcome people in our own backyard, refugees, people who've come from other nations as well. We're all interconnected. To deny it or or be paralyzed by our interconnectedness is is foolishness. We are interconnected. And um, the the question is, how do we relate to that interconnectedness, to our brothers and sisters in healthy ways, not in white savior or colonizing or other ways that are unhealthy and and evil? I feel like anybody who's spent any time across cultures has begun to see what beauty another people group holds. Yeah. And yeah, but you have, to, I think you do have to take on a posture of learning though, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, what do we know? <laughs> what do we know as we enter another culture? You, you just simply look at those who come to New Zealand, perhaps not speaking English from a different culture, you know, just observing the challenges they face in navigating what's going on here. Uh, you can imagine the on the flip side those same challenges as we go into their nation. So yeah, there's there's a lot of learning to do. There's no excuse for going out with a know-it-all, triumphalistic, kind of victorious attitude. You know, we're not bringing Jesus to them. Jesus is already there, um, and so there's a lot to learn. Where is what is going on in this place? What is the conversation that God is already having with these people? I wanted to kind of ask you about communism. <laughs> I just, so we had a, um, Shamsi is a sociology lecturer here at Vic, and okay. we've had him on this podcast, and he's a Marxist. Okay. Um, and there's been some conversation around communism and things. Mm-hmm. So the Khmer Rouge is arguably the result of communism applied in the real world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I think that that call means that I'm called to love my neighbors. And so I'm very interested in politics, because politics is how we love our neighbors in public. It's how we affect the policies that affect our neighbors. But just to say up front, I'm not a political scientist or philosopher like your lecturer, 
but I am someone who has seen the aftermath of communism. So while I lean very far left <laughs> politically, generally speaking, I don't see how um, using the, the power of the nation state to force people in a particularly extreme direction it doesn't seem to have worked historically. Now, what has worked is um, the Jesus picture of sharing and holding things in common, which is a beautiful invitation. And um, I look at Acts 2 and Acts 4, um, where the earliest followers of Jesus who had sat at his feet and listened to him, and then after Jesus is no longer on earth, to say, well, how are we going to live this out? And actually, they'd already been living it out. But in Acts 2 and Acts 4, it says, they shared everything in common. They sold what they had and brought it to help the poor. And then one of the most incredible lines in all of human literature, there were no needy persons in their midst. In other words, those earliest followers of Jesus with this beautiful vision of voluntarily sacrificing began to build this society where poverty was overcome. Now, to me, that that's a beautiful vision that I want to participate in. So that's one of the reasons why we actually ended up, as a social enterprise, as a business, ended up building a camp in Cambodia, the first camp in Cambodia. I asked the question, why do Kiwi kids all get to have their pick of, you know, dozens of amazing camps in New Zealand? Cambodian kids who have never had a chance to get out of the slum, to go to the, go and see the ocean for the first time, feel the sand between their toes for the first time, and experience camp together. So that's one of the things we did. Not not to kind of enact communism, but to live out this beautiful vision that I think I think Jesus's vision of community is superior to communism, just on a couple of points. And uh, the history of Christian community is much more beautiful and much more fruitful than the history of communism. You had this amazing story about the table outside your place during kind of the first COVID, COVID lockdown yeah, yeah. in Cambodia. I feel like yeah. that speaks to what you've just For said. sure, for sure. So COVID lockdown, right? You, you guys went through that here in New Zealand. Um, and, and you benefited from a government that wanted to be fairly transparent. Some might debate that, but um, 1 p.m. every day, you got to know what was going to happen. In Cambodia, it was more like um, announcement pops out and within an hour, things are happening. So our, our lockdown was announced with about an hour's notice and the whole city er erupted in chaos. People rushed out to try to get some food, and, you know, long lines at the ATMs. So I went out, tried to get, you know, I went out and got a few bags of food. Uh, my wife, Nay, goes next door, little little shack next door, eight eight of our neighbours all living in one little shack. And they come back, They also, their, their father also went out, and he comes back with like two cans of fish in like a tiny little bottle of oil. I'm like, is that all? Nay's like, is that all you've got for, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be in lockdown. And they're like, well, that's all we could afford because... What we earn that day is what we use to buy food. And we don't have a fridge anyway to store anything. So as you can imagine, as the soldiers rolled out the barricades, because when they do a lockdown in Cambodia, they, do it, they take it seriously. They literally rolled out barricades. They literally were putting barbed wire at the ends of our streets so we couldn't leave our neighbourhoods. 
just as a side note, please don't talk to me about tyranny in New Zealand. I mean, <laughs> let's get real. So anyway, we're there and we are locked down under, um, under soldiers' watch, you know, with massive guns and all of this. And the poor can't leave to make any money. They, they start, many people are starting to starve. And it actually becomes a very dire situation. This is 2021. Mm. So we got on a Zoom call with some of our alongsiders leaders and we're saying, what can we do? Well, you know, our neighbours are starving. You know, some of them report, yeah, there have been people who have organised like rice distributions, have managed to get through the soldiers to distribute rice, but then the powerful in the community just take it all for themselves. Uh, those with political connections or just power take it themselves. So that, that may not work and, and it just fosters, it doesn't foster a good sense of, of who we are anyway as a movement. We're about loving our, our own neighbours, not necessarily bringing in resources from outside. So, so one of us just said, um, what if we were to put a table out the front of our house and just put what we could possibly spare on that table and make a sign in Cambodian language that would say, those who have extra, please add to this table. And those who are in need, help yourself. It sounded much cooler in Cambodian, actually. It was like, mean some time net some yog. It was just, it's a little bit more pithy in Cambodian. And so, and then we made that a hashtag because it's 2021 by this stage, you've got to have a hashtag. So then, uh, we, you, then we, we said, well, we'll not only do that, but then we will take a photo of it and tag our friends on Facebook and challenge them to do it. And um, so we had this community table challenge. And what's just so beautiful, we did this um, together with some of our neighbours who wanted to participate. And uh, we're just putting out, you know, a couple of extra bananas. And this old lady across the road, she comes across and she says, I've, I've got a cucumber to contribute to the table. And we're like, well, why don't you also take something? So she, she says, okay, and she picks up a couple of eggs and then hobbles back to her little little shack. And that just, for me, just captures the essence of the beauty of working in a community with what the community has, encouraging that spirit of sharing. And you know, those who, who are people of faith, whenever we talk about spirit in the community, community spirit, I like to think that's like the Holy Spirit is stirring. And um, it was a beautiful movement that actually spread all over the country, hundreds of these um, community tables just popping up, not just Christians, but just people who got the, got the vision. And, um, yeah, it was really cool to see. Even those who economically would be considered poor are able to, to participate in this vision of sharing, which is so Jesus, mm. so Jesus. So when Rachel and I were discussing what we'd read of your book, there was one section that we were really excited about. Um, and you write, this book is for every person who has a passionate longing to see God's love change the world, but a distaste for the negative baggage of traditional colonial missions. It is for every globally minded follower of Jesus who recognizes that the world doesn't need more white saviors or saviors of any color, but it also doesn't need more apathetic or disengaged Christians. It is for those who know that our guilt and tears, our thoughts and prayers, mean nothing to the poor and marginalised in the majority world unless they are matched with action. Yeah. It's a powerful, powerful statement there. Yeah, that's, that's why I wrote the book. 
you know, I called it subversive mission um, because subversive is something that comes from below and brings change. So my, first, uh, my second book was called Subversive Jesus because Jesus acts from below and brings change. Mm. And then he invites us into subversive mission. Whether we're here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, or we're anywhere, we called to acts of subversion, um, bringing change from below. And so the subtitle is Serving as Outsiders in a World of Need. So recognizing that we are outsiders in many of the places we go, recognizing that we carry with us power and privilege and resources that change the game. If we go out there without that self-awareness, we are fools. We must recognize that when we go into a place of poverty, just the fact that we speak English as a first language, our networks, our resources, our passports even, gives us access to resources and privilege that um, many, most people don't have. So what does it look like then to serve in that context? Is there a way or is it just as soon as you even consider that you are a white savior? And so then the response of many is just complete paralysis. Okay, then I will never consider being a part of a community in Kenya or Cambodia or Myanmar because there is no other possible role for me other than white saviour. I wrote this book to suggest that perhaps there are other postures and roles that we could take if we do the work first of understanding where we're coming from and gaining a framework and an understanding of how we might enter into those places. So um, if I could just backtrack a little bit, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right? So he's born actually in the context of colonialism, of empire, because the Romans forced his family to go to Bethlehem for a census. So here the the empire, the Roman empire, the, the colonists, Jesus is born in the shadow of that. Even just his birth, his place is dictated by the empire, by the, co- the colonists, right? And um, he goes there for, they go there for a census. Census is for two reasons, to figure out how much tax they can get, how much money they can extract from the population, and how many men of fighting age they either have to suppress or recruit into their army. So it's about the military. It's about power and money. Empire is always about power and money. Those are the twin pillars of empire. Those are the twin pillars of colonialism. And so whenever we engage in the world as people who have power and money and use power and money in ways that don't empower, we are engaging in empire. We are engaging in in colonialism. Then is there another way? I mean, is there a way to be in the world without leveraging our power and money? Yes, there is. It's what my book What I want to suggest is that there is a way to be in the world without leveraging power and money to disempower those who don't have those things. It's not just about, okay, then we're going to make sure they have power and money. So we're going to make them like Westerners. Um, That's just more, we're just spreading the gospel of consumerism and capitalism then. And a lot of development activity is actually just that. It's like, well, how do we make everybody middle class like us? But I believe that Jesus has a more beautiful vision and is already stirring. And that's the thesis of this book is that Jesus is already at work. He's already stirring up leaders from within the community. And our role is not to go and save them. 
or to use our money and power to save them, but to come alongside them and encourage them and strengthen their hand. We, we are the sidekicks. We don't get to be the superheroes. We get to be the sidekicks. So I came and visited you and your wife earlier this year, and I was just picking your brains about missions. And I think I came back from Cambodia and I'd seen missions done pretty well, but I'd also seen it done kind of badly in some cases. And I came back, I guess, just confused and disgruntled with missions. And I was like, oh my gosh, it doesn't really actually always feel like it's for the people. Um, and you said to me, you need to read my book. I wrote it, it for you. <laughs> it's for people like myself and Anna who care about the world and we want to yes. see justice come. Yeah. We want to see kingdom come, but. Yeah. And, you know, you, you recognize that the, the alternative or the false dichotomy that we're offered, which is just disengagement and apathy and, you know, doing nothing, mm-hmm. is not good enough. Like, I'm, I'm here to say it's not good enough. We can do better for our brothers and sisters around the world. We can learn from them, but we can be a part of um, rebuilding something that is more beautiful than what the world has to offer. Mm-hmm. On that, you've talked in the book a little bit about the different modes of kind of acting and living missionally, whether you're an insider in the context that you're in or an outsider. Yeah. We were really struck by the fact that, like, it is so true that there are amazing local leaders, local apostles, local prophets, people who are, like, born and raised and rooted in those contexts that have those gifts to offer their communities. And we were kind of struck with, okay, so what, like, what is the need for an outsider then? Mm-hmm. If I can kind of provoke you to yeah. expand on that a bit more. What's the role of an outsider? Well, um, just to unpack that insider-outsider stuff, and that language may or may not be helpful for you, John Perkins, the civil rights leader in, in the United States, uses the term remainers, is those who choose to stay in their community. They are insiders. They choose to stay and be a part of rebuilding their community. Um, Then he talks about returners, those who are from that community, but they return. So like my wife, Nay, from Cambodia, but she chose to return and serve her own people with the the, um, skills and advantages and connections she's gained from being outside the community. And then uh, the role of relocators, which is outsiders, people who choose to relocate and be a part of rebuilding that community. And John Perkins suggests that we need all three. We need all three. Now, at the center will be the remainers, will be the insiders, because those are, those are the people who must lead in the long term. But um, what, what an incredibly sad situation where we say, well, well you guys go for it and we're not going to be of any kind of encouragement or or assistance to you, you know. It's all on you. And especially people who are completely, like, trotted, downtrodden by oppression and poverty to say to them, we're, we're not going to stand in solidarity with you. You got this. is <laughs> actually pretty sad. Um, you know, if we're to love our brothers and sisters, then we're to ask, how can, I, how can I love and be alongside you even in your suffering? And so I I believe in a world of interdependence, not a world where we just create pockets of independence. I think that's more of a biblical vision, that we we hold hands across the nations. We stand in solidarity with those who are on the margins. I think that's a more beautiful way to live. And so the question isn't, do we leave them alone? 
It's simply how do we join them in ways that are healthy and not undermining, but they are strengthened through that process. So, we, you know, as outsiders, we bring certain things that insiders do not have. Aung San Suu Kyi said, use your liberty to promote ours. You know, like we bring a network, you know, I have a platform online of people that I can tell about the atrocities in Myanmar mm-hmm. right now. That's a Burmese person who perhaps may not even speak English but maybe a freedom fighter right there in Myanmar right now doesn't have that access. So how do I amplify that person's voice? That's just one example of what we might bring into the picture. Now, we shouldn't go in with assumptions of this is what I bring and this is what I'm going to do. We need to listen and learn first. But there, believe me, there are many, many things that we can participate in and offer. And you do this, um, you kind of explore these ideas through the lens of the fivefold ministry. Yeah, so in Ephesians 4, there's kind of this framework that, that many Christians will be familiar with. It's, it's kind of like a one of the first personality-type t- tests. It's kind of like, what you, what's your gifting? What's your strength? Paul talks about the apostles who are, are kind of pioneers. They start new things. He talks about the prophets who speak truth to justice. They they fight against oppression. He talks about the evangelists who, who want to spread good news. He talks about teachers who have expertise to share. And he talks about pastors or shepherds who care for the people. But my, my reading of that is that that makes a lot of sense. And, and the way that we've applied it makes a lot of sense where we are insiders, where there's no power differential. But as soon as we kind of go into situations where we hold a lot of power, we hold a lot of resources, we need to reframe those. So that's what I'm doing in that book. So take, for example, the prophet, the role of the prophet. Where if I'm a if I'm a, like a protest leader in the streets of Wellington, uh, you know, fighting for housing rights, could I suggest that perhaps your role in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, might look a little bit different? You're not to lead the protests. You're to become an ally who amplifies the voices of those who lead the protests, who speak out against injustice. So, for example, in Cambodia, land rights, and you could call it housing, is is similarly a major issue. People keep... I've been evicted from slums twice, and uh, some of our folks who had been evicted from a slum, a group of women, Cambodian women, they were just so fed up with being evicted and their land being stolen. They took their wooden beds and put them right at the intersection, one of the busiest intersections in Canada. They just stuck their beds right in the middle and said, we got nowhere to sleep, and uh, so we're here. And, of course, within, like, minutes, they're arrested. And within hours, they're actually charged. And that very day, they were sent to prison for a year. Now, those are the prophets of Cambodia. And what a, what a sad thing if we say, we have no role <laughs> They'll be okay there rotting in prison. What if we were to say instead, well, how can I come as an ally to these women who have everything being thrown at them, everything crushing them? How can I amplify their voice? How can I encourage them? Not as the leader of the, the initiative, but as an ally who, who strengthens their hand, who gets the word out. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. You also talk in your book about your experience in Democracy Square, your kind of prophetic protest um, against the election um, and 
some of the political things that were going on at that time. Can you speak to what the value of that was? Like there was such a high risk in you to uptaking that action, a, a different risk to your Cambodian friends taking the same action, of course. But I guess, I don't know how to articulate this well. What was the point? What was, yeah, what was the point? Like, <laughs> What's what kind the of, damn point? What was the point of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we have to ask that about all the prophetic actions throughout the Bible, right? I mean, there was, there was very little success or impact. Um, and those of us who are called to to live prophetic lives really need to grapple with the reality that prophetic action very very rarely results in change or impact, at least that we can see. And so it's much more of a call to faithfulness and to solidarity. So um, leading up to the elections, I meet with a group of Cambodian Christian leaders who, who are passionate about issues of justice. I don't lead the group, I just participate. We were talking about what can we do during this election? The government has jailed all the opposition. So this is not a free election at all, even though they pretend it is. Same prime minister for the last 37 years. So we're like, what can we do? We know we will just be instantly crushed like bugs if we do anything. So then all that's left to us is to lament and so I just asked the question, how do Cambodians mourn? How do they lament? And they said, well, when our father dies or our mother dies, we shave our heads, we wear all white, we pin a piece of black cloth to our shirt. And then we got into a discussion of, well, that's what we should do on election day. And I said, well, what, what if we would go down to Democracy Square and do that and just pray, shaving heads and obviously lamenting for the death of of freedom in our country. And they said, well, well, if we go down there, we will be uh, dead by the end of the day with a bullet in our head and our bodies will be floating in the Mekong River. But Craig, you could do it because you're a foreigner. You could get away with it. And I said, um, okay. <laughs> um, all right. So, so I, you know, I consider this and I decide, yeah, that's, this is the right thing to do. So, so, Leading up to that day, we're kind of at we each go to the the barber. It costs a dollar in Cambodia. Yeah, it's it's awesome. We're all getting our heads shaved and sending photos to each other in this private WhatsApp group, just saying, "Hey, hey I'm getting mine shaved." And this one of them is bald already, and so we're hassling him, saying, "Oh, come on, you're cheating, man! You didn't even have to shave your <laughs> Anyway, a couple of days before the election, the photo of me getting my head shaved pops up. It's starting to get forward around. Not from our group. Like, we don't, it was a very small group who are very security conscious, like paranoid. And it gets forwarded to one of the other Cambodians in the group. And he says, Where, from, from a friend, he says, Where did you get this photo? The, the person who forwarded it to him says, Oh, we were at this government meeting about um, activists and dissidents that we need to keep an eye on. And we thought it was funny that there was a foreigner shaving his head in the Cambodian way. So, yeah, that's where I took the photo. He took it of the screen on the wall that was showing my photo. And so we're like, oh, how did they get my photo? This is really bad. So then, of course, I have to, again, think, you know, um, what are the consequences if I go through with this action? Now, as it turns out, and I, I did go down to Democracy Square on that day. I decided to go in solidarity. I decided to take on a level of risk. And as it turns out, I wasn't arrested. Uh, I just hung out with uh, homeless folks in the in Democracy Square that day. 
But um, I think, you know, those kinds of acts say to our brothers and sisters, we, we care about you. And it's not just saying, well, well, too bad that those things are happening to you. But we're saying, can I walk alongside you a little bit and perhaps be of some encouragement to you? And uh, I, I believe that even if nobody knew, um, there's, there's an element of faithfulness that and solidarity that is worthwhile. That only makes sense, perhaps, in, in the spiritual realm. I don't know. But um, I want to be a person who, who doesn't just say, my brothers and sisters are suffering, so, so be it, too bad. I want to be someone who says, I'll be with you. Mm. I'll be with you. I feel like in the West we have quite a big appetite for white saviour storytelling, to have kind of a, a hero that is white mm -hmm. and uh, you talk in your book about like kind of some of the figures, the movies and the, and the books that we read that include these kinds of narratives. Yeah. Um, you also talk about the dangers of this kind of storytelling. So could you speak a little bit more to that and um, how then we can share stories of transformation and hope in these spaces? Yeah. So, I mean, telling stories is really powerful. Uh, Jesus just pretty much just told stories because stories really stick in our minds and in our hearts and stories can transform. And so we must be storytellers. The danger is that with, with the white savior narrative is that it's the, it's the person of power and privilege who is always framed as the one who, who is responsible for bringing all that transformation. And that sends a really loud message to those who are not people with privilege in that same situation, that um, the answer is not within yourselves or with God's help. It's to look to outside people and outside resources. And that just simply reinforces the message they've been told all their life of, you have nothing to offer in this situation. You're pathetic. You're hopeless. Your only hope is that someone would come with loads of money and maybe white skin to come and help you out. Um, which is a very disempowering message and results in the opposite of what we hope. If we want to see transformation, we need people to believe that their actions can result in change. And so the white savior narrative undermines change. Mm. And if we are people who are not satisfied with the status quo, then we cannot perpetuate this white savior narrative because it undermines what needs to take place. So those of us who come as outsiders, there is a role, as I've already said, there is a clear role, but not to be at the centre, not to be the ones that the story is about, but to be those perhaps who tell the story outside, who share the stories. Now, how we tell stories is important. I think many of us have kind of reflected on, on those advertisements we've seen. And to be honest, I'm kind of shocked that Save the Children in New Zealand is still posting advertisements on TV that portray African people as complete victims and, you know, distended stomachs. I mean, I thought those advertisements went out in the 80s when we realised that that's not a helpful picture to portray. And so many of us have moved on from telling stories in that way where we paint people as complete victims. Um, but we absolutely must describe the tragedy that's unfolding. We absolutely must describe the injustice. We absolutely must describe the poverty um, but the way to do that in a balanced and healthy way is to couple it by talking of the, the ways in which the people have resilience, have strength, um, have overcome. And so finding that right balance between tragedy and resilience in our storytelling is really the key. And so we, we tell stories that 
are true and uh, are not just one-sided. Well, they, you know, if we only speak of their resilience, it's like, well, look at these happy people in the slums who are so happy with their poverty and they're going around smiling all the time. That's, you know, that's bullshit. They have all kinds of struggles. They have all kinds of issues that they are dealing with if you will learn their language and get to know them and listen to their stories. So a true story will not only speak of their resilience or not only speak of their tragedy, but speak of those two things together. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a story. <laughs> My friend Sinyet in Cambodia, it was just the most beautiful thing she told me one day was that she, so the coups of the Khmer Rouge were happening right up until like the year 2000. And she'd witnessed a number of them in her hometown. And she was really afraid of balloons popping um because of the sounds that it made and it was just but she was working with kids and she was doing these kids clubs and things and so one day she just like let herself into her office and closed the door and blew up a whole bunch of balloons Mm. and just popped them over and over and over again until she was like no longer scared she just asked the lord like would you bless me with the resilience to kind of like yeah hear the sound and no longer be afraid and she yeah now she can do balloons as much as yeah. he wants to. It's, it's overcoming. It's beautiful. Yeah. And so many of, like, my experience of Cambodians was that that's exactly what they were, like, who they were as, as resilient people. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's a great deal of resilience and perseverance. And uh, those are the things that we can learn from and be inspired by. It's a gift to us, yeah, to get to hear those those stories and to get to meet those individuals. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm really interested to hear more about the animal farm story. Are you happy to talk a bit more about yeah. the story in that climate? I mean, you know, as we journey in solidarity with people who are facing injustice, again, sometimes we might be in situations of danger ourselves. So this this same group that did the election thing. Soon after that, we decided to go on a retreat to, to this campsite, Shalom Valley, that I was talking about before. And uh, it was, we were up on a balcony. Uh, we'd been hanging out all day and we, were, we wanted to show a movie, we wanted to project it on the wall. And um, I've been involved in an animation studio in, in Cambodia, training up young Cambodians to make animations for change. And one of them had taken Animal Farm, the original, like, 1956, I think, animated story. It still holds up really well. Look it up on YouTube. George Orwell. Yeah. George Orwell. Great book that we all read at college. Anyway, so she had taken this animation and added Cambodian subtitles to it. And she said, oh, should should we upload it to YouTube, Craig? And I'm like, oh, I think the political tension right now is pretty high. Let's just hold back because there was an election coming up and it was, yeah, there was a lot going on. But she was, like, really proud of her work, so she just uploaded it. And then she's like, Craig, I I just uploaded it anyway. So I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. Why don't we show that at this retreat? So we'll show it on the wall and it'll just be an interesting thing to watch. So we start watching this animal farm. And now go back and have a look. It's really got a real revolutionary feel to it, more than I had remembered and, like, the sheep are, like, standing there with pitchforks, like, we're going to overthrow the farm. We're taking down Farmer Brown or Farmer Jones, whatever. We're taking him down. Like, it's just, like, this very revolutionary feel to it. And so I'm sitting there going, oh, man, this is a little bit more political than we could probably get away with. 
And then um, right around then, one of the young Cambodian leaders just taps me on the shoulder and says, there's three police here. They're standing down and says, we're up on a balcony outside projecting on the wall. So they're down below the balcony. So they can see us and they can see the movie on the wall. And they're like, what are you guys doing? And so, so um, this young Cambodian woman who's part of the group comes to me and says, there's police here. And I said, shall I go down and talk to them? I speak Cambodian, but sometimes I get upset with the police. So, so they've realised, keep Craig to the side. So she said, no, 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 you'll make it worse. I'll go down and talk to them. <laughs> so, so she goes down and they say, what are you doing? And she says, oh, nothing really. We're just watching a children's movie. And um, from the angle they're standing, they cannot see the subtitles, so they actually don't realise what's going on in this movie. And they literally stand there with her for the next two hours watching the entire movie without any idea of what the movie is about. And it's just this amazing, like, example or story of, you know, eyes being closed. (laughs) And, you know, there is something, you know, I believe God is with us, the spirit moves, things happen that um, are sometimes beyond our understanding. And for me, that was that was just a classic moment of, wow, their eyes were closed. If they had been slightly taller, they could have seen the, the subtitles and figured out what was going on. It's like a holy intervention. Mm. Yeah. Um, on that, you talk in your book a little bit about secularism and yeah. kind of that being a danger. I just found your story about Roxy being being ill and then going to the the clinic yeah. for medicine for her and then you actually realising like, oh, I really rely on medicine and there is a, a real spiritual element to healing. And can you share a little bit of that story sure. and um, why you think it's important for us to just challenge our Western secularism? I mean, I think we, we compartmentalise. Many of us have a very Western way of thinking about the world, which is actually much more about secularism and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had this little girl in our neighbourhood. We, we were living in a slum which was notorious for prostitution, um, generational. So this little girl's name, she was probably three years old, was Roxy which means working girl, like working, Roxy. Her sister's name was Diamond. And um, so there in our, in our, we used to just open up our front area. We had Lego and the local kids would just find this place of kind of safe haven to play with Lego and just be kids. And um, Roxy is kind of propped up in the corner. Normally she'd be playing. And I said to Diamond, what's wrong with Roxy? And um, she says, I don't know. She likes, she can't walk today. And uh, so I, I kind of pick up Roxy and her legs are kind of dangling below her. I take her around the corner to her mother and say, what's wrong? And she kind of, kind of starts crying and says, well, Roxy hasn't been able to walk for the last 24 hours. I don't know what's wrong. You know, I've got to look after these other babies that I'm trying to look after. So I'm like, well, well you know, do you want to go to the clinic? And she's like, well, I can't go anywhere, but can you take Roxy to the clinic? So me and my daughter, Micah, prop up Roxy between us on the motorbike and we go off to the clinic and the doctor says she's malnourished. She just needs these vitamins and these medicines and stuff. So I take it back, give it to the mother and say, you know, give her these, she's malnourished, then she'll be okay. The next morning I kind of hear this commotion at the front of their house 
And I go around and the neighbors have kind of gathered around and they've hired this kind of healer type person who you have to pay them. They'll come and they will chant these incantations and they blow, they blow on the, on the person. So there's, there's these rituals that they do. And I'm like, what, what are they doing? And they're like, oh, Dave, she's paid him to come in and heal Rossi. So then I'm kind of like, well, I kind of already healed Rossi. <laughs> so I'm like kind of annoyed and pridefully arrogant and upset. So I go stomping back to my wife, Nay, and I'm like, you know, she just paid money. She has no money to feed them, but she's borrowed more money to pay this guy to come and blow on Rossi. So I was kind of pissed off. And now he's like, come on, Craig. I mean, you know how what Cambodians believe that all sickness and all of those things are all interconnected, spiritual, physical, emotional, all of those things are interconnected. And so you may bring a physical response, but if there's still a spiritual element that hasn't been addressed, then they don't feel like it's been, it's been you know, addressed. So I'm like, all right then. And then like a day later, Rossi's mother comes comes by all happy and she's like, Rossi's been healed. I'm so glad I brought in that fortune teller guy to and I'm like, come on. <laughs> so anyway, like I just sit with this, sit with it, and talk to a few more of my Cambodian friends. And about a month later, the kids come in again and they're like, Oh, look. Uh, Uncle Craig, Roxy's got a big cut on her foot and it's kind of infected. Can you help her? Because they, you know, they're like, Uncle Craig's got some medicine and he knows a little bit what to do. So I'm like, okay, come, gather around. Like, let's all just gather around here. And I get out this betadine, like this purple medicine stuff, and you paint it on and it's supposed to like disinfect it and stuff. I paint it on and then I say, should we just like pray for healing of this, of this foot? And so then I just start to chant in the Cambodian monk's way, the fortune teller way of chanting. Just something like, Just something like that. And I say, this is, you can just chant like this to Jesus and to ask for healing. Whenever you're sick, you don't have to pay anyone because there is healing that's freely available to people. Yeah, it was just my attempt, I mean, you know, foolish attempt to perhaps learn a little bit more of a sense of integration um, between our physical and our spiritual. And that might sound really woo-woo to some people, but as Westerners, many of us kind of lean towards just that very kind of physical understanding of the world. Mm. It's the same interconnectedness, don't you think, that you were talking about before when it comes to just one another? Yeah. It's just that holistic yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and that interconnectedness is something that we Westerners actually, it's, it's hard for us to, to grasp. If I could kind of frame it with the sense of where Western European understanding in the world comes from. You know, we trace it back to Greece. The Greek thinkers and philosophers kind of were the founders of our Western European way of thinking and culture. Mm. But for Asians and Eastern people that can be traced back to China, where the Eastern philosophers and Chinese thinkers. And so very different contexts. In China, you know, people's lives revolve around growing rice. You grow rice, you need water, you need irrigation. And that means you must cooperate with your neighbors. Uh, if you make the village chief angry, he could cut off your, your water and you will die. Rice is eaten, like, as, you know, New Zealand, we don't realize rice is like three times a day. If you don't eat rice, you are not, you have not eaten. 
And so right from the, the very foundations of, of Asian kind of culture and practice, they must live in harmony with one another or they will die. Now go over to Greece, you know, we're hunting and fishing and, you know, if we, if we make Uncle Aesop down the road angry, it um, doesn't really matter. Who cares? In fact, we can go down and debate Uncle Aesop down in Athens and have these big arguments and debates, and uh, there's no consequences. So we live lives of complete individualism and liberty and freedom for ourselves. And that has flowed through into particularly kind of European uh, and American, white American, uh, and... Pakeha New Zealand way of thinking about the world. Now, obviously, Maori Pacific cultures are much closer to the Eastern way of thinking, where harmony is so important. And so, you know, I've spent many, many years in Cambodia. I just every year I just get to new depths of understanding my own individualistic outlook on the world. Like from day one, you know, our children are put in a little room by themselves, the baby's room whereas Cambodian children sleep with their whole family in one room, sometimes up until they're 18. They're sleeping in the same bed with their parents. Like just every single aspect of life that you could even imagine is either very individualistic or very kind of community-oriented. And that makes a huge difference even to the way we understand the gospel. How do we explain what it means that Jesus died for us? He died, you know, from an individualistic perspective, it's kind of like, oh, it's between me and God. Um, you know, Jesus died for me. I'm saved. Who cares about my family? Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't that makes has hardly any impact on the decision. For Cambodians, it's like, well, if I become a Christian, uh, who will bury my mother in the traditional Buddhist way? Mm-hmm. Our whole family will be dishonored. Uh, what about my ancestors? All of these things. So, we, again, we have to confront our different way of thinking. It's not wrong, but it's different. And unless we're self-aware, then, again, we go in with ignorance and doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And there's a large cost with uh, choosing Jesus in a country like Cambodia, no? Well, there, there is, but sometimes we make the cost higher than it should be. <laughs> we make it worse because we ask people to... Uh, walk away from their culture and their family and their traditions unnecessarily, mm. ridiculously. Mm. And so those who make that choice, many of them make massive sacrifices. And yes, of course, to follow Jesus takes, you know, sacrifice, but not unnecessary sacrifice. Um, I'll give you an example. In Cambodia, uh, they use incense to worship their ancestors. Every day they light sticks of incense. And so when missionaries first came, they said, well, that's a, that's, that's a bad practice. So don't do that and follow, worship Jesus in this way. And so Cambodian Christians never use incense in their worship, even though it's found throughout the Old Testament. You've got people lighting incense in Solomon's temple and all of these things, right? They, you know, that's, that's where we, we ask for sacrifice that is, that is unnecessary. In Mongolia... Uh, they were wiser, the missionaries, when they saw that yak milk is so central to the way they worship, because milk is like the, 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 the liquid of life. They would toss a glass of yak milk into the air for the gods. And so rather than saying, no more milk tossing, the missionaries simply said, why don't you toss that milk to the one true God, to Jesus? 
And uh, every time you want to toss milk to the gods, toss it to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for this milk. And so, you know, a slight redirection, but retaining culture, retaining practice that is so important. I mean, you look at Paul visiting, you know, the Apostle Paul visiting the city of Athens, and he looks at all these idols. He doesn't go around smashing them. He, he says, look at this idol that you've built to the gods, the unknown god. Let me tell you about that God. So it's this bridging from the no, the known to the unknown. And uh, I think that's really powerful. I noticed that a lot of churches in Cambodia were set up in a very, like, kind of got a band of, you know, eight to ten people. You've got a drummer, you've got a keyboard, you've got a couple of electric guitars and a bass yeah. and four lead singers. And then you mentioned this in your book as well. They'll, they'll sing translated versions of songs by Bethel and Hillsong and... Yeah. And like initially I think I felt completely comfortable with it and the longer I was there the more I was like this feels really sad these guys have such a beautiful culture and background and when they sing it's from deep within them and then they're like trying to fit their beautiful Khmer creative voices into this western way of worship. Yeah. Would you be able to speak to Well, I mean I think we we need to recognize that there's nuance because we live in a in a globalizing world. And so, you know, part of our role is to uphold culture and encourage them and say, it's all right to worship Jesus in your cultural way. Do it. Go for it. But also recognizing that they they get their cultural influences. Culture changes. And they're getting their cultural influences from YouTube and um, the internet and all kinds of places. And young people in particular are increasingly globalized. And so they are going to have other ways of wanting to worship. And so I think there's freedom. As long as they sense that freedom, as long as they're like, oh, we could worship in this traditional Cambodian way if we wanted to, but uh, we'd also like to kind of be a rock band at the same time. I think there's grace and freedom, but we don't want to be the bringers of that westernized culture. We simply want to be people who strengthen and encourage. Mm. And is the way to to not be the bringers of our Western culture without realizing it, is, is that a process of recognizing what our kind of cultural influences and, and norms are and our positionality so that when we're in that space we're not like assuming that is the norm and kind of yeah I mean we're we're always going to be bringing a lot <laughs> just because it's who we are you know yeah and that's okay but we we come as learners mm-hmm. and and one of the postures that I think we can do and this this might be surprising to you actually is we can be learners and scholars of local customs and actually help our Cambodian friends or our, our local friends understand those in ways that they perhaps didn't. So with our Cambodian team, every time there was a Buddhist festival or ceremony, I would go deep into what is the background of this? What does it mean? And then how do we, what does that mean in the, in the light of what Jesus teaches? How could we like slightly tweak it or how could we embrace it? So most of them were just had just been taught, oh, you just reject everything from Buddhism, from culture, you reject it all. So I kind of took on this role of, well, let's let's have conversations. What does this Chumbin festival mean? Where's it coming from? What's the roots? And almost very often they had no idea of the background of their own practices. So, of course, there are many Cambodians who do, but the young people that I was journeying with very often didn't. You see that in the life of William Carey, who was a great scholar of the local culture, a translator of ancient literature. 
And so he was someone who strengthened local culture. And we, we can do that too as well. These are all some pretty big issues and things to think on. And kind of one of the things we really are keen to hear from those we are interviewing is where do you draw your hope from? Um, I draw my hope actually from the young alongsiders in the movement. I mean, these are young people, you know, 18, 20, many of them living in, in slum shacks in rural villages. I think of Rachel in Malawi, who she, we, we asked them to choose their own little brother and sister. It's part of the sense of ownership. She said that she was, she lived in a village again, notorious for trafficking. And she was praying and asking God to show her who should be her little sister. She looks out her window and sees her neighbor Esther, about eight years old, being taught how to dance seductively for men by her own family. And in that moment, Rachel says, that, that's, that's my little sister. But Rachel's living literally in a mud house. <laughs> like, I've been to her house, literally in a mud, a house made of mud. And so these are, and, and, you know, that story, again, could be replicated thousands and thousands of times over across many countries. And, of course, Rachel becomes Esther's alongside her, and Esther gets back into school, and Esther's life is transformed by just her neighbor who decided to love her. Despite all the challenges, the poverty that Rachel lives in, she's making a difference. I was at a camp in Cambodia, and a, and a young alongside her, she's quite a short young woman, about five foot, and she gets up and says, my, my little sister has an announcement to make. And her little sister gets up. She's about uh, another foot taller than her. And she hands the little sister the microphone. Little sister says, I want to point out to you my alongside. She might be small in stature, but in the kingdom of God, she's a mighty warrior. She has walked alongside me for six years since I was half her size. And now I'm much taller than her. And today I want to announce that I'm ready to become an alongsider myself. You know, we just, everyone just claps and celebrates. These are kids who grew up in a rural village who are making a difference. Mm -hmm. One last story. Right after that, an alongsider gets up and he says, I'm alone at this camp. My little brother's not here and most of you know why. Because three months ago, he was playing with his friends in the floodwaters and his friend fell in the water and Nguyen was his name. Jumped into the water to save his friend and pushed him out managed to get his friend to safety before he was washed away. And no one lost his life that day. And of course, we gathered around and cried and prayed with his alongside. And uh, you asked me what inspires me. It's young people around the world who are making a, a difference in the little pocket or corner that they are. They're willing to lay down their lives. They're willing to go out of their way. They're willing to sacrifice they're not willing to be paralyzed by their theological gymnastics and conundrums. They say, I'm just going to love my neighbors. They don't have the education you have. They don't have the resources or networks you have, and yet they are willing to take a step. That's freaking inspiring to me. And uh, if they can do it, why not I? So, Craig, we, we want to hear what is your most controversial opinion? If you were in a room with other people from your field, what is something you'd likely disagree with everyone about? Um, I don't know who you would say is in my field. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just carving out my own field right here, just doing my own weird thing. Um, yeah, pretty much wherever I go, I uh, there's things that people disagree. 
<laughs> Welcome to join me on my Facebook page. The comments for some today. very interesting <laughs> conversations. Craig Greenfield on Facebook. It's true. You are yeah. one of the more colourful comment sections on my feed. I would People say people get very angry. <laughs> I, I enjoy actually learning from the way you respond to some of those angry comments. Uh, Just reading them and being like, oh, okay. Uh, it takes a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I have to delete what I wrote, you know. <laughs> do you have any book recommendations? Or do you have any books that have formed you that kind of, yeah, would be highlighted in your mind as something that's, yeah, been really formational? Yeah, I mean, it depends kind of where you're coming from. I grew up in the evangelical church, and so I was kind of grew up, you know, I feel like I heard every sermon, every Bible thing under the sun on church on Sundays. It's kind of disappointing, to be honest. It's just kind of missing the point. It didn't interest me. I walked away from it as a teenager. Um, but later on, when I became a follower of Jesus, and, and I believe that Jesus is a radical revolutionary who the world has never seen, I realized that there are writers out there and thinkers who see that. So for me, you know, Books like I can see right there on your shelf, Colossians Remixed. We're here in the in the Chaplin Library, right? Colossians Remixed. Amazing take on the book of Colossians. Or some of Chad Meyer's books, Roll Away the Stone, Binding the Strong Man. Amazing takes on the book of Mark. He might not agree with everything he says, but at least he's saying some much more provocative and radical things that if we're not radical when we're young, where did we go wrong? And Jesus is the most radical teacher that has ever walked this earth. So let's not settle for the boring online sermons of Hillsong Church. Let's, let's look beyond that and seek out those who have really plumbed the depths of the interesting Gospels. And then on a more kind of like, in the more kind of invitation into community aspect, I think Henri Nouwen's book, Compassion, Henri Nouwen in general is awesome, but his book, Compassion, is for me just an absolute game changer. I loved that book. Yeah. Mm. And then um, if, you, if you want something a little bit more accessible and readable, grab a copy of my book, Subversive Jesus. Um, that was one of my earlier books, Subversive Jesus, about inner city Vancouver and what it looks like to try to follow Jesus mm. in a Western context. Mm. And Subversive Mission. Subversive Mission coming up November 1st. You can pre-order it online. Be the I think first. this podcast will be released probably after it's been released, okay. in which case we're, so we order it online. Yeah, you can get it from wherever you get books from. Oh, so any book sh- bookstore will have it. Hopefully. Yeah, cool. should do. It's so interesting to hear from you. So thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for sharing your stories. Yeah, thanks for having me. Get yourself a copy of Subversive Mission. Right on. Thanks.